You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. All right, so good morning, church. I hope you guys are enjoying your summer. Uh, As Andy said, we are in week two of our series, For Better or Worse. And we're talking all about relationships. We're talking specifically about marriage. And uh, to kind of kick off this morning, uh, I just want to kind of admit right off the bat that I may have been a bit uh, facetious. I may have tried to pull the wool over some of your eyes if you've seen the title of today's message, because I entitled it, How to Change Your Spouse. Now, now, before the booze start or people applaud and they get us all in trouble, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking, and that's why today you will hear zero illustrations about my own marriage, because this, this title alone, this title alone has me in the doghouse all summer. But, but you, may have, you may have thought, well, how to change your spouse? What are they doing? Are they doing like a wife swap thing, which would be extremely entertaining but not very biblical, not a good idea, so I'll just go ahead and squash that right now. Uh, Or you might have seen this title or heard it and say, all right, well, I'm kind of at my wit's end with this person. I've tried to change this person, and church is my last resort. So you're saying, Jesus, I know you can do the impossible, but old boy is about to put you to the test through this one. And if you're new to church or if you're kind of unfamiliar with some of the stories of the Bible, um, I have to be honest, and I kind of got to get to share this hard truth right away with you, is that Usually when Jesus is trying to change the dynamics of a poor or a struggling relationship in our lives, what he typically does is he asks us to look at ourselves and to change something about ourselves before we do anything else. And that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on today so that I can be upfront with you about where we're going and also so I can clear my name from this horrible sermon title. Um, I, I don't want you to leave yet. Um, so, so after today, I can't promise you that you will have a formulaic way to change someone else, uh, whether it be your spouse, uh, friend, uh, family, or maybe a coworker that you're struggling to relate well to. Uh, but what I can promise you is this, that if you will let Jesus kind of speak to your heart today, if you'll let him start to change you, then it may not change them, but it will change your relationship with them. So to say that another way, that it may not have an impact right away on on their own hearts and their actions, but it will have an impact on the health of your relationship with them. And so there are two words that I want you to take away from today, and then we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so unpacking these two words, and they're this, they're attitude and action. Attitude and action, And, and these are two things that are the foundational blocks to starting, building, and sustaining healthy marriages, healthy relationships in our lives. And to kind of pull the curtain back completely this morning, these are the only two things that you actually have complete control over. So everything else, the circumstances, the other people in your relationships, you'll have an impact on them, but you won't have that complete control over them. And so if you are here today and you're looking to change your spouse, then then we're going to focus on that. We're going to give you a chance to do that by changing the one thing you do have control over, and that's yourself. So you might be saying, well, this guy just kind of tricked me. I I saw this title, and I was hoping that we would have a solution here, and I'll ask kind of two things for you. First one is don't leave. So any spouse that has got up to grab coffee, just pretend you're getting a refill right now, and you'll you'll be good to go. So we'll be going through a lot of coffee here. And the second one is this, is that I want to encourage you to let God speak to you today through his word. Let him speak to you today through his word and be open to what he has to say 
because we're all in this together. We're all growing through this together. Even the experts on marriage have either been through this or still going through this, and they know how hard this stuff is. So just be open to that. So um, today we're gonna be hanging out in a passage that might be familiar to a lot of you. I think it's very fitting that we're in the, right in the middle of wedding season. Uh, we're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open up there. That's where we're gonna be uh, digging into. And if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, it's kind of in the second half of your Bible. So there's an Old Testament and a New Testament the Old Testament is all kind of the prophecies from before Jesus. The New Testament is the testament about Jesus, and it comes out after the book of Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. And I share that with you because I believe it's so important that we know our Bibles and that we use it. This is the tool and one of the best tools that God gives us to navigate life, to navigate issues in life. And um, there's not been a time in the last 16 years of, of my own relationship with God that I haven't read this, used this, and it hasn't refined me, it hasn't challenged me, uh, and grown me to look and become more like him. Um, I love what Hebrews 4.12 says. It says that the word of God is living and active. It says that it, it divides and it pierces and even down to our joints and our marrow and down to our souls. And then it closes out that verse 12. It says that the word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So it's right back to that attitude and action, right? It says that it discerns it, it speaks to it, it judges it. The thoughts, kind of that mindset, that heart piece behind it, and the intentions, which is how we feel led to act. It looks at those. So that's what I wanna let you kind of let it do for yourself here this morning. So, so looking at 1 Corinthians, scholars will say that there were kind of two purposes for Paul writing this letter to this church. Uh, the first is the church had actually asked Paul to address a lot of issues that were going on in the church, uh, the Christian view of marriage, uh, what to do with food that's sacrificed to idols, uh, what, what does it mean for the resurrection of the dead? And, and so Paul's addressing those issues, but he had also kind of seen and heard some irregularities happening in the church and some factions had, had risen up where they were kind of causing division or they weren't fully living how the Christian life should look. So um, so Paul addresses those issues with this letter to Corinthians. And uh, the letter right before this, Romans, it's, it's a little bit different. And what you'll see there is uh, the church in Rome is a Rome that Paul had never visited. So what he wrote to them was very much, here's an overarching view of the gospel. Here's theology. Here's why we, what we believe and what we're kind of focused on. But this book, this is a church that Paul had established. He had helped build it. He has visited this church. So he knows the church in Corinth very intimately. So what he's doing here is he starts to take that theology and says, I'm gonna give you some practical ways to live this out in everyday life. So that's what we'll kind of see in this passage of 1 Corinthians 13. So let's go ahead and start in verse one. So it says that if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So the chapter right before this uh, in 12, Paul has laid out a lot of these spiritual gifts that the, the people were called to live out, the actions they were called to live out. But he starts this chapter 13 here and he, he starts to tie this idea of our, of our hearts and our attitudes to those actions and those gifts that he was talking about in the chapter before. 
he, I mean, he goes to say, says that you can do all these things. You can live out all these gifts. You can have all knowledge. You can even have faith that moves mountains. But if you don't have love, then it gets you nowhere. It's empty. It gains you nothing. And so what he starts to do in this next few verses, is he starts to talk about, well, what's that attitude? What's that mindset of love look like? And you'll see that he starts to connect both the actions, the living out of the gifts and also the attitude and the heart piece kind of behind those gifts. So verse four, he continues and he says, love, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there are knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So he's listed out these actions and how to live. And now he, he begins to give these characteristics of what love and that heart and that attitude within those actions should look like. And then he closes with this in verse 11 to 13. He says that when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul's laid out the actions in chapter 12, and then he kind of lays out this heart piece and this attitude in this next chapter, and, and to wrap it all up, and, and because he knows this church, remember, this is the church he helped establish, this is the church that he has visited, because he knows them, he kind of hits him with this hard truth on these last few verses, and he says, guys, it's, it's just kind of time to grow up. He says, it's time to put away these childhood ways, these childish actions that you're doing. And I don't think he's trying to say it to be harsh, but I think he's trying to say it because he knows how much more there could be for their lives when they put away the childish actions and they start to strive for that full maturity in Christ, when they start to strive to fully know and to be fully known, and now scholars, and, and what I think is, is true here is that verse 12, he seems to be talking about referring to when we see God face to face in heaven. And he says, but right now, we only see this blurred reflection as if we're kind of looking into a mirror. He says that we, we don't understand what does that fullness of God really look like? What does that love of God, that perfect love really look like? And in our finite beings, we can't get a clear image of, of what that is on this side of heaven but kind of going with this idea of a mirror for ourselves, that, and unless you're someone who loves yourself, then mirrors aren't really one of our best friends, right? They're not something that we love looking at because when you look in a mirror, uh, you see your own imperfections. And other people might not notice them. Um, they might say, you, but you see that, that pimple, you see my hair's not laying right, and most people don't care or notice that stuff, but we notice that when we look in the mirror. And even going beyond the physical stuff, when we look into the mirror, we start to notice what's going on on the inside as well, right? Now, it's easy to look at other people who might be uh, acting poorly 
and you, you judge their inside and you say, well, I can see that person's a bad person on the inside. But when you start to look in the mirror, it's just you. It's just yourself. And I think a lot of times God will give us spiritual mirrors in our lives to kind of point out those areas that we need to grow and those areas that we need to change. And uh, what makes this really hard that, is that if we claim to know Jesus, then the image that we should see reflecting in that mirror should look a lot more like him. But, but just as Paul's analogy here with the mirror says that it's blurry, what we tend to see is we see a blurred image looking back at us in the mirror because we know this. We know our hearts. We know our own actions. We know what's going on on the inside, and they don't always reflect what it looks like for someone who's trying to follow after Jesus. And so my wife's cousin, his name is Luke Menard, and if you're an American Idol fan, you might remember um, this, he was one of the top 16 years ago when it first started from Crawfordsville, the guy from Crawfordsville, but he's used that to kind of catapult his career and to continue to sing, and he does shows in Branson, Missouri. Um, and if you've never been to Branson, Missouri, it's like God and country right there. It is a real treat. And uh, my wife's family, so her, her dad has 14 siblings, and they've been going to Branson since they were all really young, so they rent out kind of this whole campground area and do all this stuff every couple years. And so a couple years ago, we were there, and uh, Luke had a show, so he gets us tickets to his shows. Um, and he's a, a younger-looking guy, you know, there, good-looking guy, younger one out of the kind of a four-piece quartet uh, that they sing with, phenomenal uh, quartet, but... That night they were doing this show that was kind of through the decades. So they had a number uh, where they were singing the YMCA from the village people, and, and they do costume changes throughout all of these numbers. And so him being the younger looking one and you know, good looking one, I said, we're gonna give you the role of the guy with the leather vest with no shirt on underneath it. And uh, yeah, if you can imagine, and after the show we talked to him and he's like, you know what? I hit a reality check every night because there's a mirror that's side stage that I have to walk by to get out on stage. And, and every night I just walk out and I kind of look in the mirror and say, this is my life. This is what's happened to me right now. And they, they come out and they do a great job. But, but you see, you have to really look into that mirror to truly acknowledge who you are and where you are or else you're probably gonna find yourself dressed like one of the village people in your life. <laughs> And you don't want that. Nobody wants that for you. Um, but here's why it's so important to, to let God and, and to let sometimes your spouse, who you know knows you really well, knows you better than yourself, kind of give you that spiritual mirror at times in life. To give you that spiritual mirror because if you never face the mirror, then you're never gonna be able to see what needs to change. If you never acknowledge the truth about yourself and where you are, then you're never gonna know the steps of where you need to go in order to grow, in order to make your relationships better. And so Paul gives him this challenge at the end of this attitude and this, this actions kind of tied together. He says to grow up and to live like adults, but then he encompasses all of that. And he kind of brings it back down to love. And he says the love is gonna outlast it all. The love is gonna be there. And I think he does this for a few reasons. And first that he knows that 1 John chapter four says that God is love. So he knows who love is. And he says that beyond all the knowledge, all that stuff, that, that love is gonna be the thing that sustains. It's gonna be the thing that doesn't pass away because of who it is. It's eternal because it's God and God is love. A second reason he kind of encompasses this idea of love is that he knows that without the right attitude 
that our actions result in nothing. And he kind of lays that out in those first three verses. He says, you can do all these things. You can prophesy. You can have the right attitude. But if you don't have the right heart behind it, the right attitude behind it, it's going to get you nowhere. It becomes just a show. It becomes a front that you put on. And I think the last reason that he kind of encompasses it all in love, and I think this is the most important one, is he knows that our attitude or our actions will flow from the attitude of our hearts. Our actions will flow from the attitude of our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So whether you have love or don't have love, it will impact your actions. This proverb says that everything you do, everything flows from it. So you might argue back and you might say, well, well, don't my actions have to count towards something? And I'm just going to ask a very vague question here this morning. I'm gonna let the husbands answer this one and maybe not out loud, but uh, think, of, think of the last time or how many times you've done uh, something nice for your spouse and she instantly starts to question why you're doing that. And you know that she knows you better than anyone else. She's, she's checking your heart. She's checking your motives. And, and I'll just say this. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter if you were in a public place. It doesn't matter if you were a thousand miles away and you send her a nice text, but you both know your flight gets home that night. Yeah, she's responding to that text. Uh, new phone, who this? I, did, I know what your heart is in that moment. So I'll just, I'll just kind of leave it at that. So what I'll, what I'll say is your attitude, it has to go beyond this, this outward facade. It has to go beyond just an outward appearance and it has to reach to your heart. It has to be a matter of the heart because my demeanor towards you could be perfectly fine. It could be nice and happy, but if my heart and my attitude is still holding on to hatred, it's still holding on to anger or bitterness, then it's still a wrong attitude. It's still not the right attitude. And, and just as we read, our attitude and everything we do is gonna impact our action. It's gonna flow from it. So Paul, I think, intentionally chooses this Greek word agape when he uses this word love. So knowing the Greek language, you know that you can choose different words. So we get one word translated in English, love, but he could have chose a few different Greek words that had a different meaning of love. But I think he intentionally chooses agape because he says, I don't want it to be just a love that's driven by passion or desires. I don't want it to be just a, a brotherly or friendship type love. But he says, I want to choose this agape, this unconditional love, this perfect love. So that means that it's without conditions. And that means that it's a love that, that kind of sits above the other person's actions towards me. It's a love that supersedes all the circumstances. And it's a type of love that will cause you not only to feel different in your heart, but also to act different and live different in your life. And when we begin to operate in this unconditional love, it'll lead to a change in both your attitude, kind of the heart, and your actions, the living out of, of what you're doing. And here's why that matters. Here's why it's so important. It's because Christ-like attitudes and actions will always lead to authenticity. Christ-like attitudes and actions will always lead 
to authenticity, when we begin to kind of operate in this unconditional love and let it impact our attitudes and actions, it will always lead to authentic relationships in our lives. Now, does that mean that the circumstances get any easier? Maybe not. Does that mean it's not going to take a lot of hard work and effort to make your marriage work? Not at all. But what it does mean is that when you let that unconditional love start to impact your attitude and actions and lead you to authenticity, that it'll open your heart to the other person. And these two things, our attitudes and our actions, they have a a positive correlation. And, And what that means is that they're joined together, they're connected together. So as one increases, the other increases. As one decreases, the other will decrease. And, and to kind of put this uh, into a simple perspective, think about your paycheck. For hourly workers, the more hours you work, the more you'll get paid. The less you work, the less you get paid. Or if you're walking on a treadmill, the more you walk or run on the treadmill, the more calories you'll burn. The less you do it, the less calories you'll burn. So that's this kind of relationship between these attitudes and, in, and these actions. And you can see that Paul is showing us that these are so connected together that they're gonna cause you to either move towards your spouse together or away from your spouse together. They're gonna cause you to either approach the hard relationships in your lives or to avoid those hard relationships in your lives. And I think God wants us to get this here this morning because we can start to see that the lack of authenticity, authenticity in our relationships could be due to our own attitude, our, our own actions. You know, maybe we do desire to love our spouses, but we're not fully living it out. And I would say maybe your love hasn't reached that level of that unconditional love, or maybe we're doing the right thing and we are living out the right actions, but we're still holding on, we're still harboring this, this frustration, this bitterness towards the other. And in both of those cases, neither of those are getting us the results we want. Neither of those are leading us to authenticity and authentic relationships in our marriages and in our lives because we know what that feels like. We know what an authentic relationship feels like with some people. We know what it feels like with God and and we even knew what it felt like with our spouses maybe when we first got married, when it all started. So we've got to check our attitudes. We've got to check our actions and make sure that they are leading us to authenticity. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy but it means that we're gonna be real. We're gonna be real about both of those. And since this authenticity is so important in all of our relationships, um, I wanna kinda of go back to that mirror analogy and, and I wanna give you a few examples of some authenticity killers that you might find in your marriage or in your relationships. And, and remember when I share these, that we're looking in the mirror, we're looking at our own hearts and, and we're looking at ourselves. So the first authenticity killer is this, is that you blame others. Now this is the sure mark of someone who struggles relationally because they say, well, it's always the other person's fault and it's never my fault. It's always their issue and never my issue. And, and what we might be doing in that moment is you might actually be projecting your own feelings upon them. So for example, if I, if I lack trust for my wife, then I start to ask her, like, I don't feel like you trust me. It's really not her feelings, but it's my own feelings I'm putting on here. And people that struggle with this uh, authenticity killer typically have a hard time apologizing because what they'll say is, well, it's always their issue and they need to come to the table. It's never my issue. It's not my struggle. 
A second authenticity killer that you might find in your relationships is you have a hard time hearing others. And you might even be having a hard time hearing me tell you this right now. But it's already hard enough to know what our spouse is thinking. It's already hard enough to kind of figure out what's in their head. But when we don't listen to them, then we're not giving them the chance and we're not giving ourselves the chance to fully hear what they're saying, to fully understand, to see the big picture and the full picture of what they're trying to tell us. And people who struggle with this, they tend to find themselves kind of in defense mode a lot. Um, If you're always someone who's looking at, uh, well, how am I gonna respond? How am I gonna win this argument, win this battle? When you're either fighting with your spouse or talking with other people, then this might be one that you struggle with right now. And, and, and finally, this last authenticity killer, and this one is huge. It says that you lie or deceive to hide true feelings and thoughts. You lie or deceive to hide true feelings and thoughts. And Colossians chapter three, Paul talks about this idea. He says that we're called to put off our old self with its anger, its malice, its slander in order that we can put on the new self in Christ. And he goes through this list of all these bad things, but I find it interesting that in verse eight, he says all this whole list of bad stuff, but verse nine, he separates out this idea of lying. He says, and do not lie to one another. And I think he does that because he knows that when you lie in a relationship, that it breaks the trust of that relationship and that lying undermines everything else in that relationship. And this idea of lying, I don't think it's just this idea of saying untrue things to our spouse. That might not be your struggle or or many of our struggles, but it's also this idea of falsehood that you can't acknowledge the truth about yourself. That you can't see the truth about yourself and we simply are deceiving ourselves. Plato said that the greatest deception is self-deception. And when people see this last authenticity killer in your life, they will struggle to believe you in any area of your life. Because if they can't believe you, then they won't be able to believe in anything that you do. It undermines everything else. And I don't think it's coincidence that Paul ends Colossians 3 with this image of what the Christian household should look like and what Christian marriages should look like. He says, husbands and wives, you're to submit to one another, to love one another sacrificially, the way that God has loved you. And then he wraps it all up in verse 23. And he says that, and whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Work at it with all of your heart. So if you find yourself maybe living out one or a couple of these authenticity killers in your relationships, then you might be ruining the chance to have a real relationship, a real connection with others in your lives. And, and knowing that each person is being authentic, while, while it is very hard, it's so, it's so huge because of what that does is that allows you to focus on the real issues of the relationship rather than some of these sideline ones like this. So you might be here today, you might be saying, all right, well, I have these struggling relationships in my life. I'm struggling in my marriage. And maybe God is starting to work on your heart today to say, well, what if it is my own heart? What if it is my own attitude, my own actions that are kind of causing this disruption in my relationships? And, and what I'll say is last week, Mac t- talked about the idea that 
for our relationships to be healthy, for them to improve, that it takes grace for others. We've gotta give grace to others. And what I'll say this week is along with that grace, if you wanna improve your relationships, it's also going to take humility for yourself. It takes humility for yourself. You've gotta recognize that you don't always and you won't always get it right, and that's where you need that grace from others to cover you. That's where you need that grace to hold you tight. And, and the danger is that if we don't start to recognize that, if we lack that characteristic of humility, if we think that we're always right, then what we're doing is we are stopping the other person from giving us the grace that we need. Hear that, from giving us the grace that we need. And you and you alone may be robbing your own relationships of the chance of reaching their fullest potential. So humility, what it does, it opens our heart to receive the grace of others and acknowledges the truth about ourselves to say, God, where do you need to change me? Where do you need to grow me? And, and as Paul said, we've got to put childlike ways behind us and to start to take responsibility for our own growth. Because we know, we all, we all get this, we all understand this, that, that the only thing constant in, in life is change. Everything's always changing. Our spouses will change. Circumstances may change. But growth, growth and taking responsibility is a choice. It's a choice that we have, and it's the only thing that's really in your full control. It's the only thing we have in our full control. So what I want to do is I want to encourage you, church, that for the sake of our relationships, for the sake of our friendships, our marriages, and for the sake of the witness of Jesus in this world, let's choose to grow today. Let's let God give us that spiritual mirror to check our attitudes, to check our actions and say, God, where do you wanna move me? Where do I need to be humble? Where do I need the grace of others, whether it's for my friends or my spouse? And let's start to work on the health of our relationships. Jesus said that they're gonna recognize true love and true Christians by how they treat one another, how they love one another. That's what the world is looking for. That's what you're looking for in your marriage. So start to let him grow you. Start to let him change you. So what I want to do is, is we're going to go into this time of communion that we do every week where we take uh, the cup and we take the bread and it represents the body and the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus in our lives. And, and as, as we're doing this this morning, here's what I want you to do is that if you've never allowed God to give you that spiritual mirror, to kind of say, Rhett, I need to show you some stuff. I need to work on some stuff with you. If you've never allowed him to do that, then use this moment to do that. Look at the sacrifice he made. Look at the love that he gave on the cross to give you life, to give you fullness, to show you what authentic love and relationships look like. Thank him for that. Remember that and say, God, let, it, let me live that out in my relationships. So I'm gonna pray for us and the servers are gonna come forward and just take this time to allow God to grow you, to speak to you, and let's live better for the sake of his name, church. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you are a God who showed us the proper 
attitude, you counted yourself as nothing. And not only just having that mindset, Lord, but you lived it out by dying on the cross for us, by giving everything for us, Lord. Lord, I pray right now for myself, I pray for every heart in this place, that we would be open to seeing what you want to show us today. So that our marriages, our friendships, our working relationships can all improve most importantly can be a witness of the sacrificial love you give us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for the cross. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.